So today we're interviewing Eric Holfesen. Eric is Chief Technology Officer of Petronas Lubricants International. So Eric, it's been a while since we caught up with each other. I first met you when you were with Shell Research Center in Singapore. So how have you been? What have you been up to since that time? Uh, yeah, hi Vicky. It has been a long time. It's, it's 20 years and uh, I think a lot has happened in particular. Uh, we started together uh, with UNEP on making fuels in Asia cleaner and now we see where we are today. There's no more lead. Uh, we have reduced sulfur in a lot of the countries considerably and if I look back, I, I look back with pride because I, I feel part of this process and, and I think those who are, have been involved have done, done a very good job for the Asian people more or less. Yes, so you were part of the UNEP um, Partnership for Clean Fuels and Vehicles. And I think if I'm, if I remember correctly, it was last year when they announced that finally lead is completely off the market around the world. So that is quite an accomplishment. And uh, how difficult it was it to take lead out of gasoline? Um, here in, in Asia, it was, of course, uh, difficult because there were a few countries that were uh, very res resistant to, uh, to the takeout for various reasons. And once the decisions were made, there were still large stockpiles that had to be um, drawn down. Um, and over time, but it, resilience pays, pays off. Don't take no for an answer and try again. And uh, I think that uh, it was a painful process, but it, in the end, it, uh, it was successful. And now the next step, of course, is, uh, is reducing the sulfur in Asia as well. And we are on a very, very good path. And I think we're, well, soon we will uh, we'll see more European standard fuels all over Asia. Okay, let's start from the beginning. What's wrong about sulfur? We know what's wrong about lead. Is uh, sulfur, as as we know, is is not a pollutant itself. It's an enabler for uh, better uh, exhaust gas after treatment devices, and that's why we need to get to very low or even eliminate sulfur all altogether. Once you are below um, the Euro two threshold it really becomes an enabler. And uh, to have modern technology all throughout Asia for trucks in particular, uh, you need those low sulfur level or sulfur-free fuels. So we're talking about really 10 parts per million, not Correct. zero sulfur, right? Correct. Okay. If we can go to 50 um, everywhere, that would be a, a big step. And the ultimate goal is 10, of course. And where are we now in Asia? Uh, we have a mixed mixed bag, but I think uh, a lot of the Asian countries now have access to 10 ppm already. 50 is uh, is the standard, with a few countries uh, still above the 50 limit. And uh, it's the question is why it's it's that way. It's the refinery infrastructure that is is yeah outdated and needs heavy investments. And unfortunately, also with the current situation, uh, there, there is not so much capital available to do the necessary steps. And 
and governments are prepared to step back a little bit, I think, uh, and wait because of the situation. I think in, a- in Asia Pacific, including Australia, the only government that seems to be supportive of refinery upgrades at this point is really Australia. They just gave uh, a grant, if I'm not mistaken, to Viva Energy to upgrade the old shell refinery so that it can continue to operate um, with lower sulfur. And But of course, they are in a different situation, aren't they? They're really after energy security. Correct. Yeah. I think in Australia, I followed that very closely. It, I, I believe it's a matter of national uh, energy security that Australia wants to maintain at least a, a minimum level of uh, in-country refining. Yes, and they only have two left. And so that <laughs> that really brings them down to not having too much of an option if if both refineries have to close down because they can't meet the sulfur requirement. Correct. Yeah. But since your fuel, you started in Asia working on fuels, then you moved to Saudi Arabia to work in the research center of Saudi Aramco, and then you moved to Petronas. But in this role, you're actually involved in lubricants. And of course, you did have a lubricants background right from the beginning. Tell us what your lubricant background is and how you became Chief Technology Officer of Petronas Lubricants. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've have background in, uh, in both. I think I started my career more than 30 years ago as a lubricant scientist and, and worked for the, the first 10 years of, uh, of my career predominantly on, uh, on lubricants, but then got involved into low sulfur fuel introduction in, in Europe. So I was part of the European initiative to um, introduce Euro 2, which was the first big step to clean clean diesel fuels in uh, in Europe. So that's how I get my fingers a little bit wet with uh, with fuels. Then when I moved to Asia, I, I covered fuels uh, and lubricants, and then concentrate on fuels because that was where I think with with my background I could help most uh, in uh, in Asia. Um, my role in Aramco was also concentrating on, on fuels because Saudi Arabia at that point, uh, the fuels were not up to date and it was mostly without additives. So we looked into additive introduction in uh, the Saudi Arabian market. And then uh, the call came from, from Petronas whether I would, would be interested to, to join them. And I think the challenge here was that... Uh, Petronas had various lubricants parts uh, within its organization. Uh, strong presence in Brazil, strong presence, presence in, uh, in South Africa, presence in Italy, traditionally f- through the acquisition of Fiat Lubrificanti, and then the homegrown lubricants business in um, Malaysia, so covering Asian neighbors. And the challenge was to pull this all together into a global organization, both for an R&T setup, but also for technical services to ensure that the global competence and wisdom that we had accumulated over time was available to our our customers throughout our uh, global presence. 
And it took it took a few years, but uh, now I, I would say we have a very strong global organization. What year did you move to Petronas, Eric? Uh, I moved in 2013, which also coincided of, uh, with the start of uh, the partnership with Mercedes and Formula One. So that was nine years ago? Correct. And today, how different is the global footprint of Petronas Lubricants? Uh, it's it's a lot different, I would say, and, and particularly when it comes to our product portfolio, um, we we have harmonized our product portfolio across the globe. We can today guarantee um, our, to our customers the same quality throughout. Yeah, so there is no more difference between whether you sit in Europe or we, whether you sit in Brazil or in China. Uh, we have modern blending plants in under uh, my supervision. We built two, one in China and one uh, one in India, that are up and running up to the latest standards. And of course, all this is supported by uh, a technical service team that has presence very close to our customers. So we don't have uh, to wait for any one to wake up in a different time zone. We have technical support present in all time zones that can jump in and uh, help customers whenever it's required. So actually, Petronas is one of very few national oil companies that operate their lubricants business globally. Where are you in terms of market share globally? Uh, globally, we are, I think we are scratching around the, uh, to the 5%. Uh, or 5% is the ambition, um, but it's very, very uh, fragmented. We have strong markets like uh, South Africa, uh, Malaysia, uh, Italy, Brazil, where our market share is above 10%. So we are very strong players. And then, of course, we have markets that are important for us, like India and, and China, where, uh, where we're still around the 1% threshold, but we believe we have what it takes to be successful in those markets as well. So in terms of market share, uh, Shell is the top um, marketer in the world. Now, how difficult would it be to be another Shell? <laughs> uh, if I, I think it, it's very, very difficult for, for any other company to, uh, to get there. Do we have the ambition as Petronas? Um, not at that spread. So we go with an approach that is select and focused. We, we know where our strengths are and uh, we focus on, on those and we know where it would be difficult to, to enter the market. Uh, we talked over the past days at the conference here about uh, aviation lubricants. And I think if you're not involved, it would be very difficult to get involved and to get a significant share. And there are other parts of the lubricants business where you think twice whether it's something you should invest in. Yeah, because traditionally the aviation lubricants segment, and you having been part of Shell know this, has always been a major market. I mean, it's a market that's dominated by majors simply because getting certification by airlines, aircraft, and other manufacturers, and even the FAA is really very tough. Mm -hmm. 
So that's not an cannot be an aspiration for just any company. Yeah, it, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's not necessarily uh, the sophistication of the technology is the accreditation. And the second aspect uh, in aviation as well as in marine is the supply chain. Uh, global airlines, global shipping companies, they would expect you to have presence in all uh, major locations. And uh, the, the, the big companies are best situated to ensure that presence. Yeah, it seems like in the marine lubricant business, it's a little bit easier. It seems like I've seen some independent, quote-unquote, companies that have made some headway in marine lubricants. Where is Petronas in that space? Um, currently, we, uh, we play more in coastal marine, where, where we have presence like, like in Malaysia. Yeah? Um, so we, we have no ambitions to become a global marine lubricants company at this point in time, I would say. I don't know what the future holds, but this is not uh, an area we focus on. Now we, we have clear strengths, and uh, uh, one of our strengths is, is agriculture, for example. We have a, uh, a very strong portfolio. We have yeah, a good technical background to years and years of, of working with Case New Holland, who are at the sharp end of uh, the agriculture machinery technology, and we have lifted each other up, I would say. And so today, the portfolio that we have in agriculture uh, is is second to none. So we we we're, we can um, cover the whole the whole hardware area of uh, of agricultural companies. We're talking about immobility right now. Uh, at the Aliyah annual meeting, there have been some movements towards e-mobility in the agriculture sector. Where do you see that long term? Is that going to be a big shift or just a very niche shift in agriculture? Uh, it will. It will be a, a big shift in the long term, um, but there's there's a lot of mileage left. In traditional lubricants in uh, in agriculture, uh, that's that seems to be the case. Uh, you look at hydraulic applications in in particular in that sector, as in as well as in other off-road sectors like mining and uh, and construction. It seems that the hydraulic actuators, at least those that are not heavy heavy duty, will be replaced by electric actuators over time. So drivetrains hydraulic actuators will uh, go to electric. That means volumes of hydraulic lubricants will disappear. Uh, that's, a, that, that's, a, that's the reality. Um, but it will take time. Agriculture, mining, and construction equipment have a, long, a lot longer life cycle than passenger cars or trucks. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're talking uh, probably about a time horizon of beyond 2040, where the lubricant industry would feel the loss of, uh, of that market. Now, two things on the hydraulic side, Eric. Number one, hydraulic is really, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, it's more of a, it's not highly additized. Um, 
it's a more a volume market. Um, but on the other hand, though, and if you talk about Europe now, uh, maybe not so much in Asia, big move towards biodegradable hydraulic fluid. Mm-hmm. Where would you say Asia is right now in terms of biodegradability requirements? Are people looking for that, or there's really not too much of a market here in Asia for biodegradable or environmentally acceptable fluids? Yeah, it's a, it's appearing, but it's still small. It's it's not high on uh, on the agenda. Um, where I see progress in hydraulic fluids is with the with the CO2 question as well, because uh, today we can design hydraulic fluids that reduce um, the energy consumption significantly, yeah? and to an extent that, on one hand, of course, it's the CO2. But if you talk to a customer, the customer, yes, is he, he's looking at CO2. But what is close to his heart is total cost of ownership and total cost of operation. And if you can show that your hydraulic fluids is actually helping to reduce the diesel fuel bill. Um, you can have a very meaningful con- uh, discussion with the customer. And that's, that's where I see the next step in hydraulic to go. But would that be a function of the additives or would that be a function of the base oil? Um, it's, a, it's a combination, but the base oil will, will uh, play a very important role in there because of uh, yeah, the viscosity that, uh, uh, that you aim at. Yeah, so today in the passenger car market, uh, the shift is almost complete from Group 1. To, towards group two and group three for passenger car. In the hydraulic side, though, what is still the most commonly used base oil for uh, lubricant formulation in that segment? Yeah, it's, it's group one, group two. It depends on where, where the price is, uh, is set. So the hydraulic market will always uh, go to the lowest, the lowest price level uh, for, for the bulk. Uh, but that bulk is shrinking, so we see... Uh, a move towards more, let's call them premium hydraulic fluids as well. So suddenly we have synthetic, we have group three come into into play to ensure that uh, the viscosity can can get to levels that will result in significant um, energy uh, energy reductions. And normally those fluids they're using are co- they're called premium because they're they're higher price, right? So what what type of subsegment would be more amenable to paying the higher price versus the you know the ones that are oh it's okay to just use a regular hydraulic fluid? Uh, I I look at uh, at the off road sector. Yeah, like um, construction, mining, where a lot a lot of diggers are are used, a lot of hydraulic cylinders that uh, yeah that move heavy loads, and if and, and as such have a very high base load from from the energy perspective, and if you have a very high base load and you can reduce. By let's say half a percent or, or a percent, the absolute gain that you have is uh, is very attractive. Let's talk about something that's really close to your heart, I think, which is the passenger car segment. Uh, so, Petronas is very heavily involved in Formula One, and I know you've given a lot of talks on this. I've seen you on YouTube, your personality on YouTube. Um, 
Tell us the work you're doing in this area. This is very exciting, as you hinted yesterday. Yeah, we, especially as we cover all fluids in uh, the Formula One car, which, which is the Mercedes car, but, but also associated teams that use Mercedes hardware. And, uh, of course, the, the lubricant is, uh, is what we're, we're looking at. Where, where I'm involved, um, but we're also doing the fuels, and the fuels are, are uh, a very important performance element for, for the Formula One car. So this year, or over the past years, Formula One has introduced uh, biofuels starting in 2013 with 5.75%. Today, this year, for the first time, we use 10% of, of biofuels. Um, so what what we learn formulating those fuels, we can directly apply to our retail fuels that Petronas retails only in two markets, in Malaysia and, uh, and in South Africa. Um, for lubricants, of course, the knowledge we gain, we can directly use everywhere where our lubricants are, are marketed. Uh, and it's all, it, and it stays the same. It's all about uh, friction reduction reducing the friction losses in the engine and in uh, the drivetrain of uh, of the formula formula 1 car and every year we improve we improve the friction losses are reduced through viscosity and through friction modification and then uh, what we also discussed yesterday what what is probably a bit unknown is that the formula 1 cars today are hybrid cars and they have a battery uh, they have a, an electric system and this electric system, the battery, is cooled by uh, uh, a coolant that is a hydrocarbon. And this is what EVs, at least high-performance EVs, will also use today. And so when we talk to EVs, EV manufacturers, we can look back and say, we have already almost 10 years of experience in formulating and testing those fluids fluids because they are used in Formula One racing. The Formula One car has a hydrocarbon cooling fluid that uh, cools the electrical circuit of, uh, uh, of the battery system, of the hybrid system. But would they have a concern because you're using a hydrocarbon-based fluid? Would they want to use an alternative? Are there alternatives in the market today? Uh, there are uh, alternatives to, to it, but when it comes to the um, efficiency of the, of the fluids. So we have, uh, I think, the maximum efficiency built in our fluids. So any alternative that there is, we have already looked at. Uh, so we, Formula One is very, very competitive. So you, you always have to be ensure, you have to ensure that you are at the sharp end of technology. Yeah. And I guess in Formula One, maybe cost is less important, but in the real world, in the market, when you're now selling an oil, cost is really important, isn't it? It is, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's going to be a compromise between the formula that you can put in the market versus the one you're using for Formula One. Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's correct. And uh, that, that's why I emphasize on more on the learning. Uh, we, we know what to do to, um, yeah, to satisfy the needs of, of the hardware, and while in Formula One we use the best that there is, because cost is not an issue, 
um, we know what to do to get close to the best at um, a lower cost level. So having been involved in this field for more than 20 years now, tell us, give us some insights of your learnings. And particularly over the past two years, I was curious, Eric, you were mentioning uh, you used to be based in Italy. And during the pandemic, you moved to Malaysia. And tell us the story. What happened? <laughs> right. uh, we... I, I based myself in Italy for two years after we had built our new technology center um, to to really focus on on getting it up and running, getting the right resources in place. Uh, but that was always meant to be uh, a temporary assignment. Uh, while my real work is is at the Petronas headquarters in in Kuala Lumpur, and then I was on a trip in Kuala Lumpur at the beginning of the pandemic and Italy was the first country if if you if we look back two years yeah Italy was the first european country that was heavily hit by uh, by the virus and when i wanted to go back to italy um to yeah from my business trip i was told that italy was off limits for any business trip and even me being based there i was not allowed by my employer to return to Italy. So then, uh, very early, I started uh, to end my assignment in Italy, work from, from Kuala Lumpur. And when the first opportunity came to go to Italy, I, I just wound, wound up my, my private affairs there and, uh, and moved back to, to Kuala Lumpur. So, so you've been in Kuala Lumpur now for the last two years? Uh, yes, more or less. So it's, a, it's about 18 months that I'm back in Kuala Lumpur now. Yeah. What's your... What's been your experience with the pandemic? Tell us, did it change you or was it business as usual? I have a, a very positive insight, I would say. I never uh, felt that uh, virtual working was, uh, was the best option. But I think what we have learned over the pandemic is that if we all are alone, sitting in front of a computer, meetings can be very effective. I still have my doubts with hybrid meetings, where you have one room with five people and then three people um, calling in. I don't find that the whole meeting is very effective throughout the, the, the duration. While the 100% virtual meetings were, from my perspective, very, uh, very efficient, and in my team, which which is a global team, I've not seen any drop in efficiency. I would almost say we were more efficient over uh, when we when we switched to to remote working, and, and uh, knowing that a lot of a lot of us have to commute for long times between home and uh, and work, and I think. It's, a lot of people made the best out of it and splitting the commuting time between having time, more time for their families, but also giving a little bit more time for, uh, for the work. So you, do you see working from home as a longer trend beyond the pandemic? Yes. Yeah. I, I see it. I, I don't see, uh, the barriers anymore that we had before, uh, because we have the proof that there, there's always the underlying, um, suspicion yeah 
are we as effective? Are people really putting the time in at home that they would put in, in the office? And I think the results that we have seen have, have proven that it works. So the, the, the precedent is, uh, is there. So tell me, what is a typical day for a chief technology officer like you? Um, now that I'm in, in KL, I'm at the front end of, uh, of the time zone. So um, I'm, I'm a very, very active person, so I go out very early. I, I, I go for a run at 6 or 6.30 in the morning, come back. Uh, sometimes I do a little bit of yoga, have, have a nice breakfast, and then I start maybe 9, sometimes even 10 o'clock. But then it goes long, then uh, I, I deal with, with my Asian team, then I uh, catch up with Italy, with the scientists that, uh, that work there. And well, a few days per week, maybe one or two, two days per week, I have a teleconference with Brazil or with, with Chicago, where part of my team, my team sits. And that can take me until nine o'clock in the evening. But for me, it's, it's, it's fine because I have a lot of time in the morning to, uh, to do what I like to do. So a chief technology officer is, is responsible for the entire technology portfolio yes. of Petronas. Mm-hmm. How many products do you have right now? Well, it goes it goes uh, beyond uh, beyond products. Yeah, it uh, it also technology in Petronas lubricants also comprises uh, business technology, which you would would call IT. That I, that means I also cover digital, which today is a very good synergy because it's industrial lubricants. Services that rely on, on digital tools are more and more coming into our business or are more and more part of our business. And so with the current job, I can bring together the digital aspects and the product, product aspects, if, uh, if you see that. Um, Petros lubricants, of course, we, we cover, cover the whole spectrum of lubricants. So there, there's more than 1,000 products. So what do you see as your biggest challenge as chief technology officer? Is it the digitalization side or is it the product development side or certain, I don't know, formulation that, you know, that keeps you awake sometimes thinking about it? <laughs> what keeps me awake, Ricky, is really, uh, it, it, it's, it's the e-mobility. I think e-mobility for us in the lubricants industry is the biggest challenge. We know that it has happened. Um, the challenge is to find the sweet spot. When do you shift your focus from the traditional uh, lubricants that focus on, on mobility to, to e-mobility? How do you do it? And, and that is really something that, that keeps, me, uh, keeps me awake at night. Um, the discussions that we also uh, see here at the, the conference, they are also, of course, inside the company, if, particularly if a global company, the shift to immobility in Europe goes much faster than here in Asia. So suddenly there's a lot of pressure. We, we need to focus, we need to shift technology efforts into immobility. Um, but is it the right time to wind down your, your R&D work on uh, automotive lubricants? And it, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a big 
big challenge because we heard here, and even uh, Eugene Eugene mentioned it this morning, that uh, a lot of the European OEMs stop or considerably reduce their R&D work on internal combustion engines. Should we do the same in the lubricants industry and stop the work on uh, on automotive lubricants? I think it's it's premature if we do that because the internal combustion engine seems to have still a very long life in uh, in Asia. So we, we need to continue not only maintaining our portfolio, also develop new fluids for hybrid applications. Uh, currently, we're, we're just tweaking our engine oils and, and then so call them, oh, yeah, we have a hybrid uh, solutions. But I believe we have to go deeper. We have to have dedicated engine lubricants for hybrid engines. Do we have the resources for that right now, Eric? I mean, not just for Petronas, but as an industry? Um, I believe we should, because what what my mental model is, is we can slowly face down our efforts on automotive lubricants. Not stop them, but face them down, and at the same time, uh, ramp up the efforts on R&D on EV fluids. And if you get that right, that's why I, t why I was talking about the sweet spot, uh, that you always uh, shift your resources. So what you don't want is, you, you don't want scientists to lose their job. And I don't, don't know uh, we will see that in the industry. Uh, if we get the shift right as an industry, we will just repurpose scientists that today work on automotive or, or internal combustion engine lubricants and make them work on EV fluids. Yeah, that will be... That will be interesting when it happens. Actually, it's happening now. I actually yeah, was yeah. talking to um, someone um, about her work at Shell, uh, working on transmission fluids, and they're still working on the conventional as well as the the e-transmission fluids. So it's a lot of uh, a lot of things on their plate at this point because you have to cover both markets. So. Um, you mentioned a while back to about the need to do advocacy work. Now you're on the council of the Asian Lubricants Industry Association. How do you see Aliyah playing a role in this conversation? Not so much to keep on convincing people that we should still have automotive lubricants, but really delivering the right message that will be good for everyone because we're not anti-climate change. We're not anti-immobility because at the end of the day, we are all in this planet, right? Yeah, yeah. So tell us what, where you see Aliyah playing a role in this, uh, in this conversation. Um, I, I believe we have a big role to play as um, somebody who brings an unbiased view on uh, mobility and particularly in Asia, because what we see, Asia is not able to go EV at the same pace as Europe does. And there, there are a lot of infrastructural reasons for, for that. And we have countries in Asia, and it's, in, you, you may refer to a lot of official documents that are, that are out there that clearly show at what levels of, uh, 
carbonization of the grid, EVs make sense and at what level not. And then it's very easy, you look into the countries and some of the countries that are promoting EVs today, uh, when they look into the, the, carb the carbon intensity of the electricity grids, you would say it's not the best. And the question that, that I have, uh, why are they doing it? Is, is uh, there enough stakeholder education done to, uh, to make them aware of that they're not yet at the point where, where they should, should be doing this. And the second aspect, of course, is that um, the electricity consumption in Asia is likely to go, go up with a population that gets wealthier and wealthier. And using electricity for, for EVs, when a lot of people buy their first refrigerator, uh, I don't know whether it's the wise, the wisest choice, but because it, it creates inequality. Uh, uh, so we, we're, we're promoting clean for the rich who can afford an EV, while those who can just afford their first refrigerator, uh, they, they, they will, will suffer because there, there's no electricity available. Uh, so, so this balance needs to, needs to get, uh, is something we need to get right. And, and I'm very much in favor of having unbiased data. And even though I'm sitting here as a representative of the oil and gas industry, I would still consider myself very unbiased and very facts and data driven. Yes. And, um, I think, I think that's the value that you bring into the conversation. You have a very solid technical background. Um, you can, communicate excellently. Um, and I think, you know, Aliyah is very lucky to have you on the council and we hope you continue doing the work that you've been doing. Thank you so much, Eric, for this conversation. And we hope to see you again in the very near future, maybe in KL, maybe in Singapore, but definitely in the region. You will. Thank you very much, Vicky. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>